Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Oh, you're a mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Good afternoon, Cambridge, and welcome to Bums on Seats, your fortnightly fantastic film extravaganza. And we have a very, very special show for you today. My name is Yossi Osman, and I am your host. And joining me, we have Mark Liversidge. Hello. Rowan Lamb. Hello. And Alastair Ryder. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Now, I said this is a special show, and the reason for which it is a special show is because we are talking about the 39th Cambridge Film Festival. Hooray! <laughs> Big fans of the film festival here. Um, this is an annual film festival which uh, happens, well, it, it happens at the Picture House, but also at the Light Cinema this year, and there is a wide variety of films going on over the next six days yeah thursday we finish we so. finish on thursday and we started last thursday yeah. so we've got few days left if you're hoping to catch some really great films which we will be talking about today we've picked a select few um, well you, you say that we've picked about 60 yeah we, <laughs> we actually, yeah we've picked quite a, <laughs> we're probably gonna get end up talking about the whole program um but we've got a fair few to talk about including meeting gorbachev the werner herzog film domestic Camera d'Afrique and the African Film Festival. Uh, we will be talking about High AI and Then We Danced. I'm just looking at this list now. I've seen that we've picked quite a few. <laughs> Marriage Story, The Lighthouse and Monos. So we've got lots and lots to look forward to. A select few films that is basically just half the festival yeah. that we'll yeah. be talking about yeah. today. But it's such a great festival that I feel we have to cover um, quite a few films. Mark, I know you've been involved with the festival for, for many years. I mean, this is my 10th festival now and I think the festival is what got me to really love film the way I do now. Because I've been living in Cambridge for about three years and hadn't been to the festival. It hadn't really entered my frame of consciousness. And I came the first year, it was 11 days then rather than 8, and I, I saw, I think, about 25 films that week uh, and all of a sudden started to open my mind up to the kinds of films I would never otherwise have watched. Uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. Here yeah. we are, sat here now, after all this time, still talking about film. And you did an opening Q&A, am I right, for the festival this I year? did uh, Official Secrets, uh, which opened the festival at the light on Thursday, and I spoke to Martin Bright, who's portrayed by Matt Smith in the film, uh, and we also had Rocks as the opening film at the Arts Picture House. I've seen both. I can confess, now that we've we've had both of the screens of both the films, my <laughs> slight preference was for the film I didn't Q&A, it was for Rocks, which I think <laughs> is brilliant. I think Official Secrets is, is good, but it does lose the pacing slightly over the, the second half. That said, I think it's still an incredibly relevant film uh, for our times, even though, as Martin Bright said himself, being 15 years old now, it's almost a period piece. Uh, but that is now on general release, so you can see it at the light and other local cinemas that are not showing festival films at the moment. So your actual feelings on rather seeing Vox, you know, that was an official secret. <laughs> it, it, it was. And, and, uh, oh, yeah. Here we go. It started. Now the secret is out. I, I can say I I saw Rocks on uh, Thursday night, the opening film at the Picture House, and I was blown away. Alistair, I know you've seen it as yeah, well. Yeah, I absolutely adored it. Because um, Sarah Gavron, the director, I interviewed her for the Cambridge News as well. She's absolutely lovely. And the thing that she said that really stuck out to me was the fact that this was different to anything she's done before, because this was more of a collaboration with 
the writers, but also just like children within that community. They mm -hmm. workshopped a lot of the script and the story ideas with children in that community. And it was a full collaborative process to bring it to the screen. And I think that you get the humour and the vibrancy of that neighbourhood and it really sort of helps balance what is actually very bleak uh, family drama. And it, it works very well. I think for me, I mean, I could talk about rocks for ages. I'm not going to do that because I know we've got lots to cover, <laughs> but I will say a few things. 75% um, of the cast and crew were female, which I think is awesome. Um, it was a really wonderful story about these young these young women, um, coming of age story. But what I found was that it was incredibly authentic. So the main characters, I went to a very similar school to the one that they're in and went the scenes that were in the school were just exactly how it was when I was at school. It, it actually kind of felt a bit weird. <laughs> food um, fights and all? Were there food fights? Mm, oh, there was one food fight when I was right, there. Okay. But, we, <laughs> <I> went, <laughs> but not quite with the pancake batter yeah. that she throws around at people. But Rox is, is really, really brilliant. Fantastic performances. I believe none of the main cast had ever acted before... Um, before doing rocks and it was really interesting there was a Q&A with um, Sarah Gavron Claire Wilson and Teresa Coco who are the writers and um, really nice insights into that so um, check out Take One uh, website by the way for a, a for a review and some notes on that Q&A if you're interested in the film I don't believe it's showing again uh, no it's had the two screenings now it's due for release on the 24th of April next year so oh if you've got, got little start diaries counting. at home yeah. Yeah. start yeah. counting one to watch um, anybody else got anything they'd like to shout about that they've seen already I, I, I think it's worth saying on the subject of, of Q&A's that uh, do check the online festival brochure and the, and the printed brochure as well because so many of the events across the festival have events being hosted by members of the Film Trust or, or people like us and it's a great chance to actually meet and interact with the filmmakers which really you don't is. get at, at, at so many other screenings. I know some, you know some of us do other bits and pieces of, of hosting throughout the year but this is really that, that condensed into a, a week-long spell uh, and it's all those kind of things which make the festival a special experience so I, I'm going to take the opportunity to not recommend a film just yet we'll get into that we'll later get into yeah. that. I'd, I'd recommend staying after a film if there's people there um, I would just also like to point out that the festival director um, Tony Jones this is his last film festival he's been involved apparently with Cambridge Film Festival for well at the intro to rocks they said 40 years um, which is an incredible amount of uh, time so um, very sad to be seeing Tony go I know Mark you know him um, quite well don't you we do and we've interviewed him for bums on seats a few times in the past he's been very supportive of us and you know it, it is the passing of an era and i think it's just uh, making sure that uh, there are the right people in place to keep this festival going into the future because mm. tony's contribution is inestimable he's done so much to bring film into this city uh, and you know it's now down to the younger generation the likes of yourselves across the desk we're here to keep <laughs> that going i guess uh -oh. i will yeah I, I, will, I will start my pitch to be a festival director from next year then yeah, i'll, I'll put my oh, application yeah. Yep. No experience, but I'll do it. Yeah. Put your application in. It really is a fantastic festival, and I think um, the lineup this year is just incredible. You will see as we go on um, throughout the show the just sheer variety of films on offer. And what I'm particularly pleased about is the um, international films that we've got from mm. all over the world. I mean, it is stunning, and you won't get that at many festivals. So we, we've, we've got to start. There's loads to talk about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so first, I think we'll go on to uh, meeting Gorbachev. 
please allow me to explain myself. I'm a German, and the first German that you probably met wanted to kill you. <laughs> the Soviet Union was in full decline. I like Mr. Gorbachev. I think we both believe that we can do business together. This was a breakthrough. We, Americans, I would like to hear what should be on your gravestone. That's the trailer for Meeting Gorbachev, which is showing at, on Monday the 21st at 9 o'clock at the Arts Picture House and Wednesday the 23rd um, at half past three at The Light. It's directed by Werner Herzog and Andre Singer. Um, it's Werner Herzog uh, is discussing um, Gorbachev. He's a massive admirer of Gorbachev and there's a lot of archive footage about Gorbachev's rise to power from, from very humble beginnings. And he also talks to the former Soviet president um, about his time in specific events, including the end of the Cold War and obviously, and rather controversially, um, the collapse of the, the Soviet Union. So um, I'm going to come to uh, Mark and Rowan on this. Let's come to Rowan first. Oh. Well, yes, for your first impressions of the film, tell us what you thought. Well, um, I, my first impressions of the whole film, you know, as a whole piece, were that this is a much more straightforward documentary than I've seen Werner Herzog make before. Um, a couple of years ago, he released two almost back to back, Lo and Behold and um, Into the Inferno, one of which is about. I guess the internet, one of which was about volcanoes, but neither were really about that. Mm -hmm. But this documentary was, I think, very straightforwardly just about Gorbachev and his life. Because you were, you were quite... I remember when we were talking about this show, you were quite excited mm. to, to see meeting Gorbachev. I'm a bit of a Werner Herzog fanboy, I have to admit. I'm, I'm going into this film biased because I love his work. Did you think it was maybe too straightforward or was it the right kind of balance for you? For me, it was pitched exactly right. I... Sometimes it's interesting to have a documentary that bounces around, but I think this story is interesting enough that it can just be told in a pretty straightforward way. Um, as I say, I would listen to Werner Herzog read the telephone book, and so his <laughs> voice and his particular slant on things I think is very interesting. I think he managed to get some little nuggets of... Um, uh, very interesting responses from uh, Gorbachev in, in the interviews, the face-to-face -face interviews, the format of which were, was really interesting because they were clearly having a simultaneous live translation in their ear. So each question was then uh, followed by quite a long pause and then the answer came and then that was followed by quite a long pause and then the next question, which gave the interviews an air of sort of solemnity, which I don't think they would have had if they were discuss you know speaking in the same language as each other um but i found them really fascinating and i really enjoyed gorbachev's personality mm. um he's an interesting figure and i think i mean not everybody might know a lot about him but there, there might be some ideas that you might have in your head before you see this film about a figure like um gorbachev it's quite interesting mark that Werner herzog is is a big admirer of, of Gorbachev. Do you think that this comes through in the right way in this film? 
I think it comes through in a very Werner Herzog way. And, <laughs> uh, that, that, that is both a, a positive and a, and a slightly odd thing sometimes, and I, I embrace both of those things. Um, it, yeah, I think Rowan's right in saying it's one of the most conventional films it feels that, that Herzog has done for quite a while, and there is maybe a reverence there of, of the subject that I think has fed into that a certain amount. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm the, the person in the room who is old enough to remember all these kind of things actually happening at the, the sort of end of the Cold War. I, I, I can't judge ages terribly well. Well, I'm just about. I was in primary school, but I remember it happening. I yeah. remember seeing Gorbachev on the news as a child. I, you know, these things happened live. The fall of the Berlin Wall is, you know, something I remember seeing. Yes, whereas I, I was uh, doing my GCSEs and A-levels at sure. the time when that went down. So, uh, so I, I suppose, you know, from that perspective, is it, is it actually telling me much that I didn't know about that era no mm-hmm. is, is it giving me insights into to Gorbachev to a certain extent yes mm-hmm. uh, and I, I think it does paint an interesting uh, portrait of his character and I think what you get is Werner Herzog's initial scepticism about Gorbachev and uh, and a feeling he states at the beginning that he, he almost you know can't believe that Gorbachev is being genuine with him when he's being nice and actually mm. then <laughs> that does start to to fade away over the course of their interviews uh I, it's very interesting contrasting a lot of the the archive footage we see of Gorbachev yeah. in his prime and, and how he appeared when he was being interviewed, of course, with 20 years more age upon him uh, and and some, some very strange scenes, like the amount of time that's taken up at the beginning with giving him some diabetic chocolate, oh, for example. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's lovely, but it's something only Werner Herzog exactly. would actually spend the time on, on doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also talking about decadent boogie-woogies and, and yeah, yeah. Uh, all kinds of other strange things. Thing. So, yeah, yeah I think um, it is one for Herzog fans. It is one for Gorbachev fans. Um, uh, if you're not either, then... Anyone in between? Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting to see where the Venn diagram sits, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you're a documentary fan, you'll enjoy... It's, it's a quality film made very straightforwardly. Okay. I think is uh, a fair assessment. I think that's yeah. a very good assessment. Yeah. Uh, and it's worth saying as well, it's one of two Van Herzog films playing in the festival this year because Family Romance LLC is also a, a Herzog joint. Uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah, if, you, if you fancy a Herzog hit this year, it's uh, it's time to get to the festival. Mm. Did you see Family Romance? If it's that one you've I, seen? I haven't, unfortunately, no. It's, I, I had to dispense with a screener at the London Film Festival to watch something else because there's fair just enough. so much going too on. Much going on. So, and we'll talk a little bit about what you guys have learnt from the uh, London Film Festival later on in the show. Uh, but that's meeting Gorbachev. Um, thank you, Rowan. Thank you, Mark. It is showing Monday the 21st at 9 o'clock at the Arts Picture House. Or if you can't make it then, it's also showing on the 23rd, which is Wednesday at half past three at the light. Right. Moving on now to another film. We are now going to talk about Domestique, which I believe, Alistair, you, you have yeah, seen. Yeah, I have yes, seen this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's directed by Adam Zedlak and it is uh, a Czech film and a Slovakian film. It's a joint uh, film. It's about the top cyclist Roman, who has had enough of being what's known as a domestique, a cyclist who sacrifices a lot for the team. He sets up an oxygen tent at home and he is desperate to make his own career. Um, But in doing that, he is sort of sidelining the fact that his wife is is is, is very keen to have a baby and there's some tension there. So, um, Alistair, tell us about this film. So, first thing that should be noted, I like this film, but it should be, you know, put up front. This is not an easy watch. Um, It's, for the first half, it's very much about this man's ritual. I mean, the context of that narrative synopsis that we've just given isn't really fleshed out. We just sort of see it through his ritual. It opens with him cycling, this punishing regime. Uh, And 
things just go from bad to worse. And he just continuously sort of neglects his wife in order to keep training and keep pushing himself through this physical torture. And as it progresses, it goes from what initially seems like, you know, a standard uh, domestic, pun not intended, drama to something closer to, like, a David Cronenberg body horror film as these people are just sort of contorting their bodies in order to achieve a goal and getting further away from it in the process. It's like it's a very disturbing watch. It's interesting that, that you say that because I, I actually haven't had a chance um, to see this yet, but I'm looking forward to seeing it later um, in the festival. Um, I believe it's showing. I think it's showing tonight at quarter to eight at the Picture House, yeah. and it's also showing. It's a feel good film for a Saturday night. What it's a step. Yeah. Um, but um, in the, just just trying to explain to our viewers because you've got the sports element, and then you've got, like you say, the 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 domestic. Um, who is this for? Who would enjoy it's, a film like I this? I mean, it's definitely not a sports film. I mean, it opens with a very, like, sort of wink to the audience by opening with a quote from Lance Armstrong to just sort of tell you that this is actually a very cynical look at people putting themselves through just awful things to try and achieve greatness and breaking the rules to do that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely arty. I think that it does have appeal to sort of fans of horror or thriller films. Okay. Um, but it isn't played that way. It has the sort of the grotesquerie. Is that because of the feeling that it sort of inspires? Is that why you... Yeah, like it's of... a very visceral film yeah. in terms of what it depicts. And yeah, it leaves an impression certainly. So it's for more adventurous viewers. But I think if, you know, you are willing to, you know, be exposed to just utter awfulness from these people for... <laughs> two hours that's not the film that's the characters i should i, should <laughs> I was just that. going to pick on you a little bit because you were like oh it leaves an impression for sure and i was going to be like well what impression do you <laughs> mean, <laughs> apparently <laughs> awfulness yeah no um yeah it's just this man who is just incredibly toxic in his just goal to achieve perfection and just continued disregarding of his wife and yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a heavy viewing experience, but it's very worthwhile, I think. Okay. Mm. I, I, I would back up what you've said about the Cronenberg comparison there. As, as a massive Cronenberg fan myself, you know, mm -hmm. um, films like The Fly and Videodrome are some of my, my early roots into, into loving film as a kid. Um, this this feels like more late-era Cronenberg, because it's, it's, although it's set in the one flat, there's, there's uh, lots of stark interiors, and uh, then this the oxygen tent comes in that, uh, that he's using to train for, uh, and it feels like this sort of strange alien sarcophagus in the middle of the, the bedroom. The, mm. the whole thing has this, this slightly disturbing feel about it. So, um, yeah, if we're looking for someone to pitch it to, if you consider yourself a Cronenberg fan, then I think there's plenty to, to get from this certainly mm. I, I think you guys have kind of sold it to me, me in a, me in a weird sort of way I'm, <laughs> I'm quite looking forward to this one it sounds very interesting yeah Matt put it more eloquently than I could <laughs> you both yeah. put it very very eloquently yeah, I think very very quickly because we've got about 600 other films to recommend the, <laughs> the, the one thing you, you did say is who would love this kind of film I'm not sure anyone in their right mind would love this okay. um, I, it's I, an I, experience I, more than anything I, I, I think a lot of people will admire this film and I think it is it is certainly worth seeing but yeah, um, not for the week of Constitution, I would suggest. There we go. Well, if you would like to see this one, I think Rowan and I are going to take a little trip. Yeah. Um, it is showing at the Picture House at quarter to eight tonight. As, uh, so that could be your Saturday night um, 
well whatever it is and then um, it's also showing at Emmanuel at 11 o'clock was it tomorrow or Monday tomorrow morning so if you're nursing hangover it sounds like perfect film not the film to watch perfect film but very (laughs) very intrigued by that one looking forward to that so thank you both uh, for your review of that Mm. one we're going to take a little trip now we've been to um, Czech Republic and we are now going to talk about the Cambridge African Film Festival which is always a really exciting thing for me to talk about because you don't get to see a lot of African cinema anywhere else and every year at the Cambridge Film Festival there is um, this strand the Cambridge African Film Festival which is done in collaboration with the Cambridge Film Trust and there's a really exciting um, array of films um, that are happening throughout the week and um, we're going to start with um, Camera d'Afrique uh, which is a French Tunisian um, film and is directed by Ferid I'm really sorry if I've said that wrong. Um, And it's actually first featured at the 1983 Cannes Film Festival and um, has a lot of rare footage and interviews with many pioneering African filmmakers who um, overcame several obstacles um, to make African film. So the premise of it already sounds quite fascinating. Rowan, I know you've seen this. Tell us what your thoughts were. Well, it's, it's a really strange experience watching this film because... I I realised, I actually um, was able to watch this at home, um, and I realised after about, I don't know, 10 minutes, I should have got a notepad to put next to me, Mm because I wanted to write down all of the films they were talking about that I wanted to go and see, because I will admit, this is a gap in my knowledge, this early 1960s um, era of uh, independent African cinema, and... So it just opened my eyes to this, yeah, this whole massive gap. I'm sure some of those films are not available on Blu-ray at your local FOP, but I will try my best to seek some of them out because it it really did a good job of making me hungry to see more of these films. Yeah, um, it, it's a it, it's an interesting experience. <laughs> the the voiceover and the subtitles didn't match on the copy I was watching, which made it slightly distracting, but. Uh, the the film itself is 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 fascinating. Some of the interviews with the directors, I think, were my favourite moments. Um, it, it sounds really fascinating to me. I mean, uh, uh, it's hard to find African cinema, yeah. surprisingly, um, screening anywhere at any time. Mm. Um, let alone to see these kind of this kind of rare footage of these, um, like you say, sixties films. Um, and I'm quite, you know, interested to know. How it how it worked as a film talking about yeah. other films, if you know what I mean. It was it was. I mean, they talked a lot about the uh, sort of. I guess you could call it political and economic and business struggles that a lot of these uh, directors um, faced early in their careers, because essentially foreign film distribution companies had a monopoly over the distribution of film in Africa, and so a lot of directors found themselves in this absurd scenario where they could direct a film that could not be shown in their own country. Yeah. And just the fact that they continued nonetheless was kind of inspiring. Um, The discussions they were talking about African culture and making sure that Africans could identify African culture in these films. And I found it fascinating that they talked about African culture, not Ugandan culture or Nigerian culture or what have you. They were fascinated and, and really striving to make sure that yeah africans had representation which 
look, we're now nearly 50 years later, more than yeah. 50 years later than yeah. when these, some of these films are making, and that's still a struggle that I know that a lot of Africans face. Yeah. Like you said, it's very hard to find African films. It really is, yeah. Um, I just want to say, I want to call out one of the particular interviews which made me punch the air with delight. Uh, I, I didn't get to write the, the, the director's name down, sadly, but he was asked uh, whether he was concerned whether his films would play well in Europe. And he said, why... I, I mean, I don't care about Europe. Europe's on the edge of Africa. It's mm -hmm. not my centre. Mm -hmm. If they like it, if they understand me, fine, but it's not something I'm worried about. And then he said something which I want to introduce into my own life, which was, why should I be like the sunflower that turns to the sun? I am the sun. And that sort of... That's brilliant. Oh, I loved it. I, I, I rewound it and watched it again because it. I just... That attitude and that sort of feeling of independent cinema, you don't really get to see firsthand a lot. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I loved it. That's amazing, and uh, I'm going to steal that quote for myself yeah. <laughs> for whatever occasion might appear where I feel like it's uh, appropriate exactly. to use it. Um, thank you. I'm really sorry. We're going to have to stop there just because we've, we've got so much mm -hmm. else to talk about. Um, just to highlight when that's showing, that's showing on Monday the 21st of October at half past five at the Art Picture House. Um, there are three other films in this strand at the Cambridge um, African Film Festival. If you are not listening to the podcast or the repeat, if you're listening uh, on Saturday at 1.26 um, <laughs> you have time to run to the Arts Picture House for Film Festival Film. Anyone seen that one? No. Not so far. No, uh, no, it's one I'm very interested in um, which is showing at the Arts Picture House. Um, it's a South African film and it's about a young African film maker attending an international film festival and looking for funding for um, her film. Um, it's had loads of good reviews. I did a little bit of research on it before the show and it's it's definitely one to watch. Um, we've also got tomorrow, sorry, if, sorry, Sunday if, um, <laughs> at half past six, we've got Buddha in Africa which is directed by Nicole Schaefer and is an observational documentary focused on the experiences of Enoch Alu who has been brought up in a Buddhist orphanage in Malawi. He has to decide whether he wants to return to his relatives in a rural village in Malawi or go to school in Taiwan. Another one um, to watch out for, and that is the UK premiere. Oh, sorry, I also forgot to uh, point out that the film festival film is followed by a Q&A. Mark gave a good um, shout-out to Q&As earlier <laughs> um, with the co-directors Parivi uh, Kachavivi and Mupelo Makata and the producer um, Anna Tiemann so that's straight after the film if you want to see that at three o'clock and then uh, the last one that we're going to talk about which is showing Sunday at I can't see the time from here half one um, <laughs> which is one that I know Mark has seen and is very fond of it's called Talking About Trees tell us about it uh, yes I'm now going to talk about Talking About Trees which Excellent. I've been waiting to say all show and this is uh, the, the, I think it uh, shows a certain DNA with, with the film that Rowan's seen because uh, this is, is again looking at African cinema and its context and its place, uh, but looking at four Sudanese directors who've all been working to try and both make film and to get films shown. Uh, and the particular project that we see them in the film is trying to get a film shown and to, get, to revive a cinema in their local 
city uh, in Sudan and uh, they've got, I think, two objectives. Firstly, to try and re-establish something regular showing and to try and bring back Sudanese cinema, but also then to try and see what the local people want. Mm. Uh, and actually, what they end up uh, by means of a sort of poll of local people asking to get shown is Django Unchained. So <laughs> uh, I think it, it, it shows the sort of breadth of, of cinema taste, but you, you get little bits and pieces of the, the films of these Sudanese filmmakers uh, weaved throughout the film, so you can see them. It's a documentary, but it's almost shot like a narrative feature film so you you feel like you're you're following them in situ rather than actually lots of talking heads so it actually does work well with that sense of narrative within the film um it's also i think gives you that that sense of how dispiriting it must be in some of these places to try and get cinema going because when they try and do the screening they come up against so many obstacles they then start to realize why some of these cinemas have disappeared in the past because of the the resistance of the authorities uh, it's a muslim area in a muslim country so there is a, a huge amount of censorship as there are in places like iran and, and lots of other places in africa uh, that, that are uh, heavily muslim countries i did wonder how much it might go into the kind of influences in terms of politics in in sudan and how that might have might have become an obstacle for for these filmmakers does it touch on on that sort of area of Sudanese culture and history? It, it, it does to a certain extent. I think it's something where you see that they, the filmmakers almost try to hope that it's gone away and actually mm-hmm. then they discover the more they get into this that it hasn't and it's as prevalent as ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when things become difficult. So, you know, as, as much as they're trying to, to, to bring modern cinema back, they, you know, they, they find lots of old dusty projectors and, and they're, they're trying to invest in new modern projection kit and trying to paint the, the screen in the big cinema so it looks bright and gives the best experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's, it's it's a sense that, that a lot of this censorship and a lot of these things suppressed a lot of this cinema and they're almost the dying light that's trying to somehow keep it going. Mm. And, and so there's, you have a lot of empathy for them. But, you know, they're having fun as well. There, there's a scene at the beginning of the film where uh, they're recreating the end of Sunset Boulevard, the four of them, uh, and you've got one pretending to run the camera with his hand sort of winding around as if he's running an old camera and, and one with a little cloth over his head uh, doing the, uh, the, the whole... Um, I guess a Gloria Swanson bit. I, uh, my film knowledge just got out the window. Prompted <laughs> at half past one in the afternoon. Uh, anyway, so so yeah, there, there's there, there, there's a huge amount of uh, willingness, I think, and you you, you kind of empathise with them hugely. Uh, but you also, I think, have to be glad that we are living in a country where we have so many opportunities to watch films that we do, and 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 yeah, with particularly with the African film Westward Strand. And. Particularly with Sudanese cinema, I'm of Sudanese heritage, and I have to say that, that there is not much Sudanese <laughs> cinema. So mm. this this is really really fascinating, and I will be going to see this at one uh, thirty on Sunday at the Arts Picture House. Come and join me if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> right? Do we have anything else that we would like to recommend for the Cambridge Film Festival? Uh, I will pick one. It's called County Lines, and it's particularly uh, in the news at the moment. There's been stories of, of a lot of areas around the country uh, where this County Lines principle, it's children ending up in the drug trafficking trade. And uh, Henry Blake, who's uh, not only a film director but also done a lot of youth work as well, has channeled that those passions into making his first feature film. And I caught up with him at the London Film Festival to ask him all about it. Some businesses have what they call an acceptable loss. You know what the acceptable loss for your business is. You. It was all my youth work. It was all informed by what I have dealt with. Um, I obviously 
authenticated that with some colleagues of mine who I hugely respect and I just put ideas through because obviously when you're making a film you're having to by nature make editorial choices and you're having to make choices and exclude and include but in terms of the experiences it all came from me out there all over London for 11 years seeing what I've seen dealing what I've dealt with. What struck me very much about the family that you've portrayed at the centre of this story is that they, they are very normal to all intents and purposes, that there's nothing particularly exceptional about them and, and that any child like this could fall into this situation given the circumstance. Uh, in particular the performance uh, from your lead who uh, has to give a, a performance that is, is wordless for large chunks and, and has to convey a lot of that through emotion of what he's going through just physically. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think... It's all about how you pitch a family like that, you know, I think in, certainly in the tradition of British cinema, I think we've seen families who are really at the bottom of the barrel, and that wasn't the case with my experience. What I was looking at with families and when I work with families is a, is a sort of another level or strata of family, which on first appearances might seem to be normal, but there are very nuanced vulnerabilities there that are dormant and that are maybe not as obvious, but they're vulnerabilities nonetheless. And so the pitch of the family was really important to me, to make it feel accessible, but to not make it, want for a very crass term, but to not make it poverty porn, because I feel like that's, that wasn't what I had experienced. What I had experienced was the family that you see in the film. How did you also then judge the, the level of the film itself? Uh, was it difficult to try and balance getting the, the truth of the, this experience with making the film something that audiences did, weren't completely turned away from? Yeah, yeah, it was very difficult. Uh, blending those two expectations and goals was very, very difficult and was a constant battle in my head. Um, and I was very fortunate that I had a lot of support and I was given a lot of autonomy when shooting the film, you know, the producers, executive producers, heads of department, they all wanted me to make my film, which often isn't the case with filmmaking, you know, there can be a lot of control that can affect the filmmaker, but I, it wasn't the case. Um, so it was very much an internal battle of how do I blend my frontline youth work with trying to make a singular piece of cinema, and that, that is really hard, you know, it's very, very difficult. But I was very fortunate to work with great people who sort of listened and understood the essence of what I was saying. What I also loved about the film was the, the, the look of the film as well. Yeah, your cinematographer you've worked with on, on your short films as well. Do you, do you have a very close collaboration with him? Yeah, we're very, very close. Very close. Fair Sordal, the Norwegian lightmaster, you know. Um, very close relationship with him. It's a very private relationship in many ways, like we do a lot of prep, we do a lot of location scouting, we do a lot of conversations. It's, it, it's a very intimate relationship. And there's things that him and I talk about that we talk about with no one else. And I think, you know, you just have to go with how that relationship unravels. But I'm so happy and proud of his work because he gives you everything. You know, he goes beyond the call of duty, and it's a really, it's really wonderful to hear journalists say it just looks so striking or bold, and and that's definitely what he goes for.
clearly this film can't just exist in a vacuum. It has to, to go along with the discussion that goes alongside it as well. So how much do you see yourself, now you've made the film, being part of that ongoing discussion? I would hope to be part of it. You know, I don't, I don't profess or expect the film to change anything. It's not why I made it. Um, because, you know, it's the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg in relation to many, many, many other professionals doing essential on-the-ground work in relation to county lines. But, you know, I think when you come at it from a perspective like I do, which is this very unique front-line and filmmaking blend, perhaps the film could summarise and uh, arouse thought maybe more than a PowerPoint. You know what I mean? Like, I, And I think that, to me is why I made the film. It's like, you know, we all have our language. You, as a journalist, you probably either the written word or it's radio, and that's your language, and that's how you relate to the world. Others, it could be, I don't know, painting, but for me it's film, and that's how I, that's how I relate to the world, and that's how I want to express myself. So it's just a different language, and... I hope that maybe within the county lines world people could use it you know effectively and professionally to say maybe what you know a thousand word document would want to say Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Uh, we are going to have a slight musical interlude. Um, we've got some Sudanese folk music, I believe. Oh, can you remind me which one that is? It oh. is, uh, sorry about that, I will remind you which one it is. It is um, Hamza Eldin, I can't say that, ah, by it, Moasha it was is the, the name one. of the song. It was the next one. Next one I have queued up. Um, enjoy this, this is something you won't be hearing on other radio stations right now. No. on Cambridge 105 Radio. You are listening to Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105. My name is Yossi Osman. I'm joined by Mark Liversidge, Rowan Lamb and Alistair Ryder. And we were doing a very special show today for the Cambridge Film Festival. We've already talked about loads. We've still got loads to talk <laughs> about. Um, but can I just say how fantastic was that little bit of music? I know, it was beautiful. That I love that. Well, I'm sorry, it's just uh, whilst you were playing that, I tuned over to Capital and they were playing it on there as oh. well. So <laughs> station Behind the curve. Oh, yeah. oh goodness. There, there goes our originality oh, yeah. we thought we were doing so well right so we've, we've got to move on um, we're going to talk about a, another world documentary today we are going to talk to Rowan <gasps> about High AI which is directed by Issa Willinger um, it's an English and Japanese film um, and uh, oh sorry it's based it's it's a German I film see, but yeah. it's in English yeah. and with Japanese you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Rowan, take over from me. Tell well, us about this film. You've stolen my first line. I was going to say it's a German production in Japanese and English, but hey, there we are. So this is a documentary um, very much different in style to uh, Meeting Gorbachev. It's called High AI. It was actually, I think, maybe not released, but certainly made under a different name. Uh, it was actually called We Are the Robots for a, a brief period. And it is perhaps more about robots than it is AI. Okay. It covers both, but um, I think 
really where it gets interesting is when it's talking about the way that human beings interact with robots and what that does to our psychology as a group. Um, it's a fascinating subject, which I think everyone is sort of starting to become aware of. Every, you know, I, lots of our listeners right now will have a little piece of AI in their home if they've got an Amazon Alexa or a whatever else, a Google Assistant and all those kinds of things. Um, and this documentary deals with how we talk to those robots and those AI around us. Um, it's an observational style documentary. Again, there's absolutely no direct interaction with the subjects of the documentary in terms of the documentary maker interviewing her subjects. Uh, there are sort of two main strands. There's a, uh, um, a Japanese family who purchase a robot styled after a little boy who I, the impression I got was that it was designed to keep their grandmother company while they were all at work or what have you. And another thread which was fascinating, which was a man in his late 30s, early 40s buying what I'll have to describe because it's daytime as a companion robot. <laughs> um, okay. okay. But, Here we go. <laughs> but the story unfolds and it, it, it turns out that he has bought this robot as a companion, not for anything more um, salacious, let's say. I won't say any more about that story because for me, that particular strand of this documentary is the absolute heart of it. And... It, I found the film quite frustrating at first because I wanted a little bit more interaction with the subjects. I wanted to know why they chose to interact with these robots, why they chose to have a relationship with a robot rather than a human being. And as I say, I won't say any more about that because it becomes clear as the film goes on the motivations that these people have. If I may ask a question. Fire away. Um, so when we talk about robots and AI, often people think about the future mm. um, and what kind of place they'll have in the future and I think there's a little bit of an anxiety yeah. around that um, how, how does this film touch on that it's, if it does at all it's sorry. a curious one actually it really is concerned with the here and now really uh, these two stories are dealing with people who in their real lives interact with robots they the, the director plays um, over sort of quieter portions of the film um, I don't know if any of our listeners know the podcaster Sam Harris, but he is a person who is concerned with the future of AI and the future of robots and exactly the things you're describing. And he is talking with his interview subjects about, is this a worrying trend? Are we going to be in trouble? Are we sort of, are, is intelligence racing ahead of us in terms of AI and it, its capabilities? And they touch on that in the film a little bit. But really, I think this film is is a little bit more about where we're at right now and because mm -hmm. we're absolutely on the precipice of this phenomenon we okay. no one knows how to how interacting with robots is really going to affect us in the future mm -hmm. and we are discovering it right now and the, the different ways that people can can use robots in their lives um it doesn't really talk anything about sort of robots replacing humans in terms of uh, manufacturing and things like that. Yeah. But it does talk about things like if you go to a train station or um, a shopping centre, often the tourist information has been replaced with um, robots or, yeah, you know, yeah. a very rudimentary AI. I will say this, um, the film is beautifully shot. The 
the the sort of the framing of the scenes and the and the shot selection is is really wonderful. It opens with scenes in I'm assuming it's Tokyo, but some large Japanese city that very deliberately evoke the opening of Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Um, it moves through some very lonely scenes um, with robots sort of standing alone in the middle of shutdown shopping centers and things like that. The handling of the story of the and the man and his companion is pretty sensitively handled. Okay. Because, you know, again, this becomes clear as you go through the film, but you start to question why someone would be so open about, you know, that making that make, choice. Yeah. Um, because I think it's a bit of a taboo. Um, well, it, I don't think, I certainly know it's a taboo. And so this film talks about those kinds of cases, I think, really well. I would have preferred a little bit more direct interaction with the subjects, mm-hmm. but as a film, it's very, very thought-provoking and will, I think, reward any uh, anyone who's got even a vague interest in this kind of um, sort of near science fiction. Okay. Mm. Thank you very much. That's That, that sounds quite fascinating yeah. um, so if you are interested in, in seeing High AI which is directed by Issa Willinger there are two showings there is one on Saturday the 19th which is today if you're not listening to the podcast or the repeat at <laughs> 4.30 at the Picture House and there is another one at 11 o'clock on uh, Monday the 21st of October which is showing at the Light now I'm so sorry all these all these little discussions we're having they're so short because we've got so much Mm. to pack in um but we are going to talk a little bit quickly mark you and i about um miles davis birth of the cool which is showing at the film festival um because we've both seen it and we both had um we've both interviewed the director uh stanley nelson um so it's uh, a documentary another documentary um about uh, miles davis's life uh the wonderful stuff his legendary uh figure as, as as an amazing jazz artist uh but also some of the darker side of his life um and i found it um I mean, I love jazz music personally, so I knew I was going to be quite interested in this one, but I thought it was a really good take on on Miles Davis and really kind of sensitively um, done. What did you think, Mark? Uh, I I think the thing I'd applaud most is its ambition to try and capture all of Miles Davis's life. Uh, There was a film with, uh, was it Don Cheadle, Miles Ahead? Yes, uh, yeah. A couple of years ago, which, which just focused on a very narrow portion of Miles Davis's life, and even that felt a little bit overstuffed. So to try yeah. to get all of the amazing things and, and some it of the dark like things... five decades, doesn't it? It, it does, and, it, it, and, and one of the brilliant things that Stanley Norman, the director, does, he has these little montages which, which whip by... Uh, almost in a second, giving you that bit of context of history. Um, one of the things he said when I interviewed him, because uh, we both did that, as you've already said, uh, was no, that no, he was he was he was sort of pressuring the director to try and actually uh, pressuring the editor to try and get that montage tighter and tighter and tighter. Uh, and in the end, told him do it faster than you think it should be, mm. and then that's the right speed. And so you don't have to spend twenty minutes trying to get a sense of the context and the time. It's done in about two seconds, <laughs> uh, and you can then spend the time really trying to understand the man that was Miles Davis and, and it, he's a complex man and a, a it quite is. 
And Sorry, it, carry on. It does. It doesn't shy away from this. I don't think it's. No. It, you know, it, it really is warts and all. But it's weird how even those people who are uh, exploring Mars's darker side can be affectionate at the same time. You know, I think they still appreciate the qualities of him as a man and a musician, even while they recognise and highlight his flaws as well. Uh, and it's, it's it's an interesting balance in that sense. And I think that the level and the quality of the people they've got involved in those talking heads, which can be a bit dry and static sometimes, yeah. is is really exceptional. Um, and, and it does feature some of Mars's own words, if I, if I remember rightly, from his autobiography, which I think they got an actor to, to read out, because I remember speaking to Stanley Nelson, the director, and he said he didn't really want to do a sort of standard documentary with a voiceover. He wanted to kind of piece together with the talking heads, but also the archive footage, but then have Miles's words run alongside it, which which I thought actually worked quite well um, for the documentary. And I, I would recommend this film. Um, mm. I mean, obviously, if you're a jazz fan or you're a Miles Davis fan, definitely go and see it. Um, but even if you're not, it is an interesting look at sort of a real pioneer of jazz music um, and, and, and a very... Uh, interesting one at that. Mm. Uh, this feels like an ideal time to just have a little tiny snatch of Blue and Green by Miles Davis. On seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. You are listening to Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. We're doing our very special show um, for the Cambridge Film Festival, which is happening right now until Thursday, the 24th of October. We've covered so much already, and we've still got so much to go. And we've got how many minutes? Hardly any. So crack on. We're going to crack on. Uh, we're going to talk now about Levin Atkins' film, and then we danced, which I know has been a highlight for many from London, including, I believe, Alistair and Mark. Yeah, uh, it's a film I liked. What can I say? Oh, how? Hold on a minute. Tell us why you liked it. Um, so when it premiered at Cannes, I missed it over there, um, but there was great word of mouth. There was immediate comparisons to Call Me By Your Name uh, in terms of it being sort of a great uh, coming-of-age story and also just a sort of a first gay romance story. Um, after watching it, I think it's a far stronger film than Call Me By Your Name, and I think it's much more than just what that comparison says. This is more than just a, uh, a romance story. This is more than just a coming out story. Um, it's m- as much a story about uh, gender identity mm-hmm. and uh, sort of not conforming to expectations set down to you um, than it is 
these sort of stereotypical hallmarks of the romance genre. Um, I think it's as much a fully fleshed character study and exploration of this uh, Georgian dancing culture um, than it is just a romance. And I've re- just realised, gone into my thoughts on it without even giving a plot synopsis. Mark, <laughs> do you want to do a plot synopsis? Uh, I, I think it, you know, it's, it's easy enough to say that it's set in the world of national Georgian dancing. Uh, and so it, it reminds me of lots of those wonderful classic dancing films like Footloose or Flash Dance or Dirty Dancing, except it's, you know, good. Uh, and uh, hang on a second. No, I, I do love Footloose and Flash Dance and Dirty Dancing, <laughs> but, but, you know, the, 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 this, this has a quality of filmmaking which does set it apart a little bit. Uh, and, and so uh, you, you follow, uh, and I've... I've struggling to think of his name now the main character uh, but he, he's uh, on this journey and there's a, there's a number of them that get the opportunity to then audition for this big role in the national touring company uh, and so you've got the tension of them trying to get this role while all of their domestic and personal lives are unfolding and they're trying to hold jobs down to try and keep themselves actually employed uh, and so it's got the risk of some of those cliches of the, the sort of dancing movie and the, and the redemptive arcs but actually it does manage to uh, either neatly sidestep them or put fresh spins on them uh, and actually by that that final scene which i won't spoil other than saying it is uh the the classic dance movie dance scene uh where where the whole film has come to, to rise or fall on that particular scene uh is just one of the most brilliant pieces of filmmaking you could possibly ask for yeah no it is like such a triumphant final scene but it's also one where you are sort of cringing because it does have sort of an element of body horror type pain to it that's sort of without getting into horror territory it's as close to black swan as you can get without going into horror territory just about to ask that um but yeah no it's it's a triumphant final scene but also oh cringing like oh please stop dancing i know that you need to do this but please stop um i will chip in on that as well and say that there's a there's a few moments but um you, you really do get the sense of what it's like to be a trained dancer in this environment and there, there was one point when uh, he's just warming up and uh, it was sort of because the men in this dancing are on point as, as often the women are in, in sort of more traditional ballet uh, he is uh, sort of crunching and rolling his toes and I could hear all the people sat around me at the screening just kind of going oh that's horrible uh, so you know it really does give you the sense of what it must be like to put your body on the line and to, to really have to push yourself into this environment but the one thing that it does is it illustrates that this the georgian national assemble they <laughs> want um all of their male dancers to sort of give off this stereotypical depiction of masculinity you don't really see that in the dance but there but as you know he starts dancing and it's clear that he you know he's realizing his own sexuality and he's not conforming to you know traditional masculinity whatever that may be like he's there's so subtle variations in his dancing that and like the average audience member wouldn't be able to pick up on but causes controversy to like the older male characters and i think what really helps is that the director has hired you know actual trained dancers to mm-hmm. do these roles mm-hmm. um so it just looks like flawless dancing to the average person but there are these subtleties in it that when you know, when you see films like this that are made about a specific culture, you will always then see articles being like, they got this wrong, this is completely ridiculous. With this, all of the nuances are there, and I think that, you know, somebody who had grown up in this culture, like the director, you know, he would show this to somebody, and they'd be like, yeah, you've got the details right. 
I mean, I love dance films, so I, I was going to see this one anyway, but I think you two have... <laughs> I, I honestly think that you both have, have summed that up in a, really eloquently and in a way that will hopefully inspire quite a few people um, to go and see it. If you would like to go and see it, it's showing on the 22nd, that's a Tuesday, um, at 8 o'clock at the Arts Picture House. It is also showing again on the 24th, which is Thursday at uh, half past 12, also at the Arts Picture House. Right, you two, we've not got a lot of time left. I know there's a few films you want to highlight from uh, your wonderful experiences at London Film Festival. Is, so, the, is it the quick-fire recommendations round? Is I that think what this, this is? might be the quick-fire recommendations round. What would, could we, we really want to see with, those fingers. Could we yeah. please start with uh, Marriage Story, which I believe is showing tomorrow night at the Arts... Sunday night at the Arts Picture House. So, yeah, this is a new film by director Noah Baumbach. Um, it's going to be released by Netflix later this year. It's their big Oscar push this year alongside uh, The Irishman, the new Martin Scorsese film. Um... And I realise I'm not going to have to speak fast, but I will just, I will just, you know, I'll preface this review by saying this is the best film I've seen this year. It is absolutely heartbreakingly, just flawlessly perfect. And it does so by being Baumbach's sort of most grounded uh, film to date. You know, he sort of usually alternates between making these, uh, I know Toby, uh, our former producer, hates this word, but he used to make sort of quirky hipstery comedies like Francis Hart, or he'd make something more cynical uh, about like richer families like looking down on them like films like Squid and the Whale. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of him abandoning both of those. Like, it's not really a quirky sort of character comedy. It's not really a cynical look at privileged people. It's just this heartbreaking end of a couple who you would normally see in a Baumbach film, but sort of stripped of that artifice, he are just having to deal with the ramifications of the end of their relationship and what it would mean for their child, who is now caught in the middle of this bitter uh, divorce battle. It's a great film in that there are no bad characters here. Um, Even the divorce lawyers who are played by uh, Laura Dern, uh, Ray Liotta and Alan Alder, like, they're not bad people, even Mm -hmm. though they are forcing their characters into sort of a bitter custody battle just because their whole point is to win. They're it's a very warm-hearted film, mm-hmm. but it's so heartbreaking just seeing these people just who have ended on good terms just being forced into battle with each other. And, yeah, it's it's, it's a fantastic film. Best um, film you've seen this year. It's the best film I've seen this year, and, uh, yeah, so good that I can't really speak that eloquently about it because when I love something, I just end up spewing adjectives all over the mic. Mark, would you agree? Everything he said. Yeah. Uh, All right. Uh, Let's move on to The Lighthouse, which is another big big film coming out of the Cambridge Film Festival I know lots of people want to see. Yes. Um, So I caught this at Cannes earlier this year, and it was the first screening, and we knew that director Robert Eggers, he'd previously made a film, The Witch, so we were assuming that this was going to be another dark horror film. Um, About five minutes into the film, Willem Dafoe lets out a massive fart, and (laughs) it becomes clear that it's actually an oddball, dark comedy about two men going insane on a lighthouse and they can't get back to land um peter bradshaw and the guardian described it as a sort of a psycho horror remake of steptoe and son and if that doesn't make you want to go see it i don't know what will i'm going on wednesday Are yeah you? yeah i think i am as well mm. 8 45 at the arts picture house that's me too um and my, my, my only comment on that is that willem dafoe is actually playing the sea captain from the simpsons uh <laughs> that is Even actual better. character sold it to me yeah. thank you and um any other films that we've got to recommend 
Um, I think it said one screening at the time of recording, another one to go, System Crasher. We haven't mentioned it's the, the German entry for the Oscars, uh, this this crazy system that one film per country gets to go to the Oscars, which I firmly disagree with. Um, but frankly, if you're going to pick one, Germany have picked well this year. Uh, it's the story of a nine-year-old girl who's falling through the cracks in the, the social system in Germany uh, because of her incredible temper and behavioural issues, and it's a phenomenal performance uh, from the the young girl who's at the centre of it. Lovely, thank you. Rowan, Alistair? I'm uh, quite excited about Up From The Streets, which is a documentary about New Orleans and I, uh, specifically the music of that city, which is uh, a subject that I'm particularly interested in. And also um, Fire Will Come, which if you're listening to the repeat, you may have already missed, um, although it's on, on Monday as well, uh, which is um, a, sort of a pretty small film, but um, about a boy who is convicted for starting a fire, released from prison, returns home to live with his family, and then another fire starts, and uh, the story of that. Yeah, um, it is about whether or not this man is a, a fire starter, a twisted fire starter, yeah. and uh, the whole uh, the whole town uh, sort of suspects him or something, but it's told in this very slow, a very esoteric way, uh, it's very abstract, so it's uh, one for more adventurous audiences. Yeah. Amador Coro. Este es el pirómano. Sí, es este. Casi quema todo el luz. Y le van a dejar salir. Hola, May. Mira, pasa con otra condenada. Amador, tenés luz, mío. Yo sé, estoy bien contento de que estés en la casa. In terms of things that I'm looking forward to that I haven't seen yet, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing So Long My Son, which is a three-hour Chinese drama that I know nothing about other than that it's just had critics in tears. And, you know, I love a good weepy as much as the next man, so I'm going to get a box of tissues ready to cry my eyes out at that. And uh, I'm also really looking forward to seeing uh, The Invisible Life of... And I'm going to pronounce this wrong. The Invisible Life of Yuridis Guzmao. Um, which is playing on Monday and Wednesday, I believe, um, and that is uh, Brazilian uh, Brazil's e- entry to the uh, to the International Film Oscar, and it uh, won the Uncertain Regard Prize at Cannes this year. So yeah, I'm very excited to catch up with that. It's uh, apparently a very bleak social realist drama. So yeah, a perfect fun-filled film to watch on our weeknight. <laughs> I'll enjoy that. Uh, I'm just going to give a shout-out to a couple that I'm very very excited about. Um, first up is uh, Portrait. Um, of a lady on fire. That's a theme of, of fire. Of the theme no. of fire hit, but um, it's I direct- can confirm that Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it's lit. It's lit. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I- directed by mm. Celine Shammer, who did Bon de Fille, um, uh, Girlhood, which I absolutely adored from a couple of years ago. Um, and this film looks incredible. Mark, you're a fan. I, I'm a huge fan of Celine Shammer. Uh, the second festival I ever came to in 2011, her film Tomboy was playing, and I saw it on a Friday morning, and it was brilliant. And that's the kind of thing that happens at the film festival. Um, the other thing I'll say about this is that it is both a portrait of a lady on fire and a portrait of a lady on fire. And I just love that grammatical sense of how well that actually works. And that's not a spoiler, I, I could say. I, Both things happen fairly yeah, no, I annoyed uh, one, uh, the person, when I saw it at Cannes, I annoyed the, you know, my friend who I was sat with because when you see the portrait of a lady being sat on fire, I leaned to him and whispered, 
that's the portrait of a lady on fire <laughs> and he buried his head in his hands as if to be embarrassed never sitting next accident. to you in a film yeah. Yeah. Boy. and and just last up uh, another one that I'm looking forward to is The Last Black Man in San Francisco which I've seen and heard a bit about but not a lot um, but it's a Joe Talbot film um, inspired by the real life story of um, Jimmy Fails and it's, he plays a fictionalised version of himself um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. So it's about um, his loss of cross-cultural connection as he looks to sort of be part of his new hometown. So it, it's mm. it's really it sounds really interesting. I'm I'm looking forward to that one. So that's another one uh, which is actually on the last day of the festival, Thursday, the twenty fourth of October. It's almost over. It is almost Halfway over. Halfway through. If you're going to say. forget the surprise film on the last day as well yeah. oh of course do we have any ideas what it might be i always like to put a bet on it um i'm speculating that it's uh taika waititi's film jojo robert an anti-hate satire um that's the full title and i'm not going to be convinced otherwise it's an anti-hate satire um because that is played that was at the london film festival it's the closing film at the leeds film festival in a few weeks it's also played at the uk jewish film festival Cambridge is the only one it's missing out, so mm. yeah, oh, okay. I expect it being the uh, surprise. I, I'm going to put a bid in for Knives Out. I think that that's out at the end of November, and that might be a, a strong candidate as well. Oh boy, that might have convinced me to buy a ticket for the yeah. I, I film if there are any I, left. I, I will say I have no inside knowledge. No, whatsoever. no, but if only it is one that, person that, knows, right? Or two people know what the surprise is. Tony film? and the projectionist are the that's people it. that know. That's it. Always very exciting. I, yeah. If it's either of those two films that you've all that you've just mentioned, I will be thrilled. Thrilled. So the surprise film is at three o'clock on Thursday, the twenty fourth of October, um, at the Arts Picture House. I believe there is a second surprise film at no. the Light. Stop no. press change. Stop press. The second surprise film at the Light has been replaced by the Bruce Springsteen film Western Stars. And um, last but not least, I know this is one that a lot of people have mentioned to me that they want to see. Um, it is Monos. Uh, it is. I'm, I'm going to just nip in before that and just also recommend that if people haven't seen the souvenir on the big screen, uh, do get and see that, the um, uh, Joanna Hogg film. film. Sorry, uh, no, that's fine, uh, which is showing uh, Saturday and Thursday, uh, to avoid saying which day we are. And you have um, to see it on the big screen because that's the whole hog. It oh, is. Boy. Very good. Uh, so, uh, Monos uh, is the Colombian entry for the international Oscars that's being rebranded next year. Um, and I think because we've only got about 30 seconds to sum it up, it is uh, Lord of the Flies in the Colombian jungle. It is a group of young soldiers uh, who uh, are uh, put out and they're, they're looking after a, a doctor as a, a prisoner uh, and also entrusted with a milk cow that they have to try and look after. And, and these things all go downhill very, very quickly. Uh, but the, the look of the film is incredible fantastic cinematography it's got a score by Michael Levy mm-hmm. who did the music for Under the Skin and for uh, Pablo Ryan's Jackie uh, and 
you know, I, I don't want to say too much more about it to to not spoil it, but it is a, another brilliant piece of filmmaking that we're, we're very fortunate to have here at the Film Festival. I'm very excited to see it. It's showing at, on Sunday the 20th of October um, at 6.30 um, in the Arts Picture House. So many films. So many films. If you would like to know more information about the Film Festival and would like to go and book some tickets, which I think we'd all recommend you do, mm. um, please go to www.camfilmfest.com. You can get all your information there it has been a pleasure everybody and um, thank you so much to all of you for your wonderful um descriptions and analysis um of the films that we have covered today sorry for going on too long about marriage starby you did not <laughs> at all and i think a lot of people will go and see that from from what you've said yeah. so yeah. thank you very much uh i think that's pretty much all we've got time for. Uh, yeah, I will. I presume the show will be back in a couple of weeks with it will be the something next very show normal. With, with, with other things. <laughs> uh, so, two weeks' time. That's the uh, 2nd of November, 1 o'clock. Tune in. Um, and, and thank you very much for listening. And to take us out, some of the music from Monos. And uh, we'll see you all in a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs>